Thanks, Katie. Um, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles uh, or to your bulletin uh, to Psalm 58 as we continue our sermon series um, on the Psalms of Summer. Uh, as we have mentioned, the Psalms div deep, dig deep into our emotions, um, and we have seen how they dig deep into the emotion of sadness, of lament, uh, the, the emotion of joy and praise. They dig deep into our fears, right? And today, though, we come to um, perhaps an emotion that's hardest for us to stomach or work through, and that is our anger. And specifically, our desire for vengeance. The Psalms dig deeply into that emotion. Um, that said, I doubt Psalm 58 is on your top 10 list of most famous comforting psalms in the world. Um, it is pretty brutal, frankly. Walter Brueggemann, uh, who has written an excellent work called Praying Through the Psalms, I uh, commend it highly to you, um, talks about this category of songs, these angry songs um, and psalms of vengeance, uh, because they make up about one-tenth of the Psalter. Uh, so to that end, he tries to set us up, and I think that I've included a quote from him in the gutter of your bulletin there that I think is really helpful to, uh, to introduce the subject to us. The angry cry for retaliation, he writes, at one's enemies at least surprises us. We do not expect to find such a note in religious literature, and it may offend us. It does not fit very well in our usual notions of faith, piety, or spirituality. But the Psalms reflect unabashed concreteness, candor, and passion. The Psalms explore the full gamut of human experience from rage to hope. Indeed, it would be very strange if such a robust spirituality lacked such a dimension of anger and vengeance. For we would conclude that just at the crucial point, robustness had turned to cowardice and propriety. The vitality of the Psalms, if without anger and a hunger for vengeance, would be a cop-out. But we need to have no fear of that. Ain't that the truth? There is no such failure of nerve, no backing down from this religion on the brink of stridency. Thus, the expression of vengeance is not unnatural, unexpected, or inappropriate, but that in no way diminishes its problematic character. It is problematic in that, and especially maybe in the tension that we as followers of Yahweh, we as Christians are called over and over again, are we not, to love our enemies. It, it's perhaps the, one of the most assaulting commands in all the Bible. We are to love our enemies. Um, we are to bless those who persecute us. And these psalms seem to contradict that blatant commandment. These psalms are known as imprecatory psalms. There are 14 of them in the Psalter. And if you don't know what that word means, imprecation is a spoken curse. A spoken curse. And like Psalm 58... Those spoken curses are severe, and they come clearly from a play, place of deep rage and anger. 
As we, as we go into the psalm, I, I'm going to ask you to, um, to picture someone who's really hurt you in your life. Yeah. I'm asking you to go there, yes, to picture someone who has hurt you. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a sibling. Maybe it was a parent. Picture that deep wound. And if you can't, if you don't have one of those deep wounds, you will, sadly, um, at some point. But if you can't picture that, think of the injustice in the world that most gets under your crawl. That most eats at you. When you hear of it, you feel yourself just getting mad and gritting your teeth. Think of that. With that in mind, I've asked Lance um, to read this psalm, how it was written, with that emotion in mind. So Lance is being brave enough to read this Psalm 58 with anger, because that's how it was written. Lance? Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) You sure about that? I remember um, walking through a park, the park with one of my dearest friends. I, he, was on, uh, he was on the session of my uh, the church back in St. Louis, and I was on his board. And we were walking through the park, and he was angry, very angry. And he, um, he was angry because he had been betrayed. He had been hurt by someone he trusted, and as we were talking through that together, he let out a torrent of profanity um, that would give pretty much anyone a run for their money. 
I was shocked, frankly. I was like, whoa. Taken aback, really. I mean, Christians don't cuss, right? This is how these words strike us, and actually what they're meant to be. Profane words, curses, cusses. Break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out their fangs. Let them vanish. Let them dissolve like slugs into slime. Let them be like a stillborn who never sees the light of day. Whoa. Whoa. How can he say that? How can David, King David, say that? hard, especially for Christians who are called to love our enemies, right? What's this all about? The truth is we are called to a different path than much of the world. We all are called to a different path than vengeance, but those angry profanities, let's just be honest, they do reside deep in our hearts, don't they? Maybe we don't put our fists through the mouths of lions or through the mouths of our enemies, but we might put them through a wall from time to time. We hold deep grudges. We slander those who hurt us. We cuss those who threaten us. We curse in our hearts child abusers and racists and narcissists And those who betray us, those who reject us, and even those who cut us off in traffic. Slugs. Am I the only one? Are y'all with me here? This psalm expresses what's true in our hearts, and that is one of its key purposes. It gives words to our emotions. We've spoken of that all through this series. Um, And David Taylor, who I've quoted about in every sermon of this series because I learned so much from him in such a short amount of time several months ago at uh, this this, uh, conference on the psalm. Um, he gives this great illustration of that at least I know I could relate to. He said that he was uh, a student at, on the University of Texas campus, and one day he just felt the rage that was inside of him, and he realized um, that he had what he said was a wolf inside of him. And then he, see, he would see that wolf come out from time to time, right? And uh, he, re- he recalled one time when he had just had his... Um, his baby girl, and he had strapped that baby girl in the back seat of his car, and some crazy driver came and sideswiped and, and almost hit him and cut him off the road. And then he pulled up behind that, uh, that driver at a light, and he felt the wolf come out. And he said, I wanted nothing more than to get a baseball bat and smash his window. We all have wolves inside of us. We all feel deep anger, and frankly, we all want vengeance. That's what's true. Now, a uh, little side note here. Don't, don't misunderstand. The feeling of anger is often not um, 
inappropriate. Our God is angry. Our God gets angry. He is perfect, and he gets angry. At the root of our desire for vengeance is a good cry for justice that is God-given. If you are a victim of abuse, if you are a victim of betrayal, if you have been cheated or manipulated, it is absolutely right for you to be angry. It's right for us all to be angry at the injustices of the world. That is actually the image of God within us. In fact, I will say that if we're not angry, if we blow off the corrupt policymakers who only um, seem to make those apologies to serve themselves, or if we excuse the racism that's all around us, or if we ignore the injustice of poverty that we drive by every single day, if we turn a blind eye to the human trafficking problem that's happening in Austin, if we turn a blind eye to the pornography industry and how that is ruining the young men of our day, um, if we turn a blind eye to the wars that are executed for the sake of garnering power, we maim the image of God within us. Silence about injustice works against the mission of God to bring justice and to make all things new. Back in uh, St. Louis, uh, we were there when the whole Mike Brown thing blew up in Ferguson. And it was awful. <laughs> um, and there is, there is huge racism problems in the city of St. Louis. I've often said that St. Louis never went through its civil right period. It stuck But I will tell you what injured my African-American brothers and sisters um, more than anything was the fact that white pastors didn't say anything, me included, that we just sat on our hands and watched it without speaking against the blatant injustices that were happening there, whichever side you looked at. But... They were there, and we were silent. It's right to be angry. David is rightfully furious at his enemies who do wrong, who devise wrongs, who deal out violence on the earth, verses 102. He, he likens them to snakes who bite the hands of their owner, verses 4 and 5, meaning God has created them. God has given them life. God has provided for them. And yet... They bite the hand that feeds them. There is reason for our anger, and it ought to be expressed. And I would say, without hesitation, that the church, and I'm proud of this church who does express that, but a church that doesn't fight injustice or abuse or poverty or racism or bigotry is not being faithful to its God-given calling and responsibility. C.S. Lewis says of these imprecatory psalms, the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans because they took right and wrong more seriously. For if we look at their railings, we find they're usually angry not simply because these things have been done to them, but because these things are manifestly wrong <laughs> and are hateful to God as well as the victims. 
And yet the church so often looks and sounds just like the pagan culture, worshiping a gospel of tolerance instead of the gospel of Christ that demands justice. Okay. My friend, who I was walking in the park, his profanity came in response to one of our partners in that ministry who had cheated on his wife with some of the refugee women that we were ministering to. He blatantly betrayed his wife. He blatantly betrayed those refugee ladies. And he blatantly betrayed my friend and myself. And yeah, it was right for him to be angry. And it was right for him to cuss. What would it say to his wife and those refugees if we weren't profanely angry? The Christian, now kids, don't take this and run with it, all right? I see some of you. The Christian can and sometimes should cuss. But the Christian can't. And never should execute judgment and execute vengeance based off of that feeling. We are called to love our enemies. But how? How? How with the reality of vengeful anger that resides in our house? How do we do it? What do we do with the emotion? That's that's the question. That's the start. Walter Brueggemann says that we have, as far as he's concerned, he only sees three things that we can do with that anger. The first thing is we can act on it. We can get a bat or a gun, and we can go to town, and the newspapers are full of stories just like that. Or we can stuff it, right? Stuff it within ourselves, um, and that ends up usually killing us. Or spilling over into places that it shouldn't go, like our family and friends we do trust. But the third thing we can do with it, and this is really, in, in Brueggemann's mind, the only rightful response to those true feelings inside is to own them and express them to God. And then give him the injustices to deal with in his way. To give it away to God. He gives a brilliant illustration of this. He talks about two siblings who are fighting, one picking on the other. Those of you who have kids don't know what I'm talking about. And one kid hauls off and smacks the other one. And the the victim of that smack goes running to their parents and says, he hurt me, he hurt me. You go and deal with him. You go and, and hurt him back. The wise parent, Brueggemann says, doesn't say, hey, you're not allowed to talk like that. Nor does he say, okay, let me write that down so I can make sure I do exactly what you say. No, the wise parent says, I hear you, and I'm really sorry. Now, give that to me, and let me decide how best to deal with the situation. That's exactly what we are called to do. Exactly. We must express 
and own our own anger, and then we have to give it to him to deal with, which is exactly what David is doing in here. And frankly, y'all, that is the purpose of the imprecatory psalms, to give words to our anger and a means by which we express and give those to God. That is their very purpose. It's so interesting to me that so many people have such a problem with the imprecatory psalms on the ground that they are counter to Jesus' call to love our enemies when, in fact, I, I will tell you that I believe the imprecatory psalms are actually the gateway to loving our enemies. They're actually a necessary part of doing exactly what Jesus calls us to do. That's what we're to do with that emotion. But if you're like me, the question comes, yeah, but can we trust God to dish it out the way we want it dished out? Can we trust God to, to exact that vengeance on our behalf, right? To punish the perpetrator. I don't know if you're like me, but when you think of turning over justice to God, we do so only on the condition that he execute that judgment the way that we imagine it should be executed, Right? We're like the hurt sibling who's peeking through the blind saying, oh, come on, give it to him. Hit him harder than he hit me. Come on. I hope God gives her a hangover because of the way she treated me last night. I hope uh, God exposes him as the fool he is. I hope he gives him a flat tire. I hope he convicts her to the point where she will grovel to me back on her hands and knees. I hope God makes him lose his job. I hope he makes her go to jail. I hope he sends him straight to hell. We want justice done, sure, but we want it done our way. And so does David, verses 10 and 11 are fascinating. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. And mankind will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Now there's some debate over whether, how to take these verses. Some see them as an assurance that the wicked will be punished. That they will pay. And let me just be clear, judgment is real. God is angry at evil and sin and injustice. No doubt about that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But I don't think that's what's going on in David's heart and mind when he wrote these things. I think this is a continuation of David's imprecation and his angry curse from a place of rage. He knows um, ultimately... That he has to give this over to God. But in the moment of his rage, what he is doing, I believe, is hoping that God will exact justice the way David wants him to. Um, With the vengeance that he feels to bathe, bathe their feet. Let me bathe my feet in their blood. Come on, God. Let's do it that way. Slugs. But God does not execute judgment 
with the angry vengeance we feel, brothers and sisters. Scripture tells us of an amazing thing that happens with, with the feeling of vengeance in the heart of God. A transformation within him from vengeance to compassion for the perpetrator. We see that first in the flood narrative, and it's repeated again and again. God's promise is to never destroy the world again, and instead of executing his anger on evil and sin, again he promises what? To execute that justice on himself. Instead, it's part of the covenant that he establishes. Anyone seen the YouTube video of the double rainbow? It's eight years old now. Has 45 million views. So if you tune in this afternoon, you'll be one of the masses. It's, it's a hilarious video. It's apparently this dude out uh, in California camping. And uh, clearly been having a good time, if you know what I mean. Uh, but he sees this double rainbow going from one horizon to the next. Two rainbows, one on top of the other. And for, for 10 minutes, it seems like, I don't know exactly how long, he's like, whoa, he's filming it. Just filming it. You just hear his voice. Whoa, it's a double rainbow. Oh, wow, it's a double rainbow. The funniest part, though, is about three-fourths of the way, and he's like, what does it mean? What does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. In the flood narrative, God said, I will put the bow in the clouds to remind myself not to execute my vengeance upon you anymore. And many preachers and scholars have said, that it's interesting that that bow goes that way because it's like a bow pointing up to God instead of pointing down to us. He will take it upon himself. That's how God moves from vengeance to compassion for even those who have done him wrong. Man's evil does continue, of course, after the flood. We still deserve punishment for our sin, and yet, while his attitude towards the wicked is angry, it's not vengeful. It's full of compassion. When we feel the abuse and the betrayal and the unjust criticism, that, though, is the last thing that we want for our enemies, is it? We don't want God to be compassionate towards them. And so the answer to the question, can we trust God to execute judgment and, and his, his punishment our way? The answer to that question is decidedly no. We've got to give it to him, but he's not going to do with it what we would do with it. But the question really comes to us, do we really want that? past the rage, past the anger. David's 
words in verse 11 show a faulty assumption that we often operate by, that there are good people and bad people in the world, and we're on the good side, and we deserve a reward, and there are bad people over there, and they deserve God to go and kick them in the shin really hard, and we righteous people get to look on with great joy. But once the rage is given away, David knows the truth, that apart from Christ, apart from the grace of God, he deserves the same fate that he is wishing upon his enemies. Keller reminds us of this in commenting on these verses. Whenever we confront a wrongdoer, no matter how evil, we are looking in the mirror. If you have been granted repentance that leads to life or to a knowledge of the truth, you have only God to thank. Brothers and sisters, every time we sin, we perpetuate injustice. Now, it may not be abuse, and it, you may not be racist, you may not be greedy, you may not manipulate people or pout or cheat or even cuss outwardly, but all sin, even that which is locked deep away, deep in the heart, is a profanity against God and therefore it does deserve his anger but just like he said he would he has turned that anger onto himself he has shot the bow at his son instead of us and this is the way he moves from vengeance to compassion absorbing it in himself he moves because of grace <clears throat> He would be like the parent in that illustration who goes to the sibling who hurt the other and instead of grounding that child or, or sending him into his room without supper or smacking him, he grounds himself. Or he goes hungry himself. Or he smacks himself. Parents, that's not a bad way to show your kids the gospel. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. That's how God moves from vengeance to compassion for your enemies and for you and me. Amen? And that's how we can move from vengeance to compassion too. How do we love our enemies? How do we move from angry vengeance to compassion as well? Who did you picture when I asked you to picture that as we began? What injustices in the world did you picture in your heart? Jesus died for them and for that injustice too. The psalm doesn't prescribe forgetting. Let me just be really clear about that. It doesn't prescribe sweeping the sin against you under the rug or denying the hurt. I hope that's been really clear. Um, but it does prescribe a process of forgiving as we have been forgiven. 
And that process is owning the pain, expressing that pain, and then giving it to a God of compassion, all the while praying that he would remind us of the compassion he has shown us in Christ. Only then can we begin to pray for those who do wicked things, that they might respond to his compassion and that he might grant to them repentance unto life, just as he has granted that to us. Let's pray. Our Father, um, I just want to pray for the hurt here. The deep wounds, I know, I've heard it over and over, are here. And they're deep. Wounds of abuse, wounds of neglect, wounds of betrayal, wounds of harsh words. Wounds of being left out. Wounds of being not heard. Wounds of being smacked. I pray, God, that you would um, not only meet everyone here who feels those wounds, but that you would um, give them the freedom to express that really openly with you with cuss words if need be. That they would own it and express it in the safety of your grace. Help them know that you actually encourage that to you, that you want to hear from them, just like you wanted to hear from David. And I pray, God, then that you would give them the faith to give that anger to you. And to be free from that. Knowing that you have a heart of compassion for each one of us. And that you have forgiven each one of us. I pray against the lies of the devil who, who might uh, take this message and say that being angry is wrong. Um, that it is subhuman in some way when the reality is it's here in your Psalter and therefore it is an ultimate expression of our humanity that is needed. And in fact, then give us the pathway, give us the eyes to see that it's through that expression to you and entrusting it to you that you then move towards our enemies with compassion. And so, Father, I do end by praying for our enemies. I pray for our enemies globally and locally. I pray for our enemies in our homes and in our hearts. And I pray, God, that you would forgive them, that you would grant them repentance unto life, and that you might move them to see their wicked ways are antithetical to your good graces. And that you might lift them up and restore them and encourage them. And I pray for hearts who will respond to that truth that you have promised to do that very thing. 
with grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.